am about to turn 40. You can hold your applause. Um, super exciting, I'm sure, as you can imagine. Uh, but yeah, I'm, a, I'm about to, to turn 40. I haven't had a midlife crisis yet. I can kind of see one from here, I'm pretty sure. Um, but yeah, so I'm about, to, I'm about to turn 40. And regardless like, of your age here, for some of you, you're like, gosh, you're still just a kid. For others of you, like, wow, that's super old. Um, I realize that. Like, age is so relative, isn't it? Uh, and yet, I feel like in my almost 40 years, I've, I've learned a couple things, right? Uh, in fact, like, think about, like, imagine if you could go back uh, and have coffee with younger you. Like, maybe take 20 years off your age. Uh, maybe, maybe more for some of you, maybe less, right? Some of you can't go, th- go back that far. But imagine, imagine go- going back and sitting down and having coffee with younger you. Like, what, what advice would you give? Like, what, what things would you say to yourself in that moment? I mean, I, you probably have a few. I can think, like, certainly invest in Google. That would be high on the list. Um, but then others would be, like, maybe don't spend your time so much on that. That was not worth it like you thought it was. Or, or maybe like invest more in that relationship, but this one don't worry about. Like do this, don't do that. Like, I'd, have, I'd have some opinions for myself, right? I'm guessing, I'm guessing you would as well. Now, now imagine though, let's take it a step further. What if future you, later on this afternoon, you know, add 20 years to your age, future you got in a time machine, don't worry about the space-time continuum. It's going to be fine. Got in a time machine and had coffee with you later on this afternoon. What would future you say about the way you're living your life today? Like, what, what advice would they, would they give you? I mean, have you ever, ever thought about that? I think, I think for me, one thing uh, future me would probably say is, hey, Nathan, it was a beautiful summer. Your kids are at the perfect ages. And did you really put them to bed early so you could binge watch Stranger Things? Yes, I did, and no regrets. So, um, but like, there are like, what would what would future me say to like to speak into into my life, and maybe even ask yourself that question: what would what would future you want you to do? Because I think you and I we spend so much of our time in the immediate, right? That's that's part of being humans. We think about five minutes out. You're lucky to think about tomorrow, more or less, what's happening uh, a year from now or 20 years from now. And yet we spend so much of our time thinking about what am I going to do today? Who do I want to be now? Like, have you ever asked the question, who do I want to be when I'm 50? Or when I'm 30 or 70 or 90? Like, who do you want to be then? I don't know the specifics for me of how to answer that question, but I do know this. I want to get there. I want to look back with joy rather than regret. That's, I guess, probably true for all of us, right? And so maybe just take a moment and ask yourself right now, think about this, what would future you want you to do? And really, that's going to be our our driving question in our time together this morning as we look at this, this story. What would future you want you to do? Would future me want me to eat this or buy that or talk to my wife that way or parent like that or use my time like this? Or maybe even ask it another way. Am I trading today for something so much better tomorrow? 
Like, am, am I going after the short term? Because we live short term, right? Everything, we want the immediate. Like, am I, but am I giving up something that I'm going after right now that's going to cost me more later? That long-term joy. What would future you want you to do? I mean, would, would future me trade the promises of God for a bowl of stew? Nope. Yeah, well, we're going to see about that. I mean, it's a ridiculous question, isn't it? Like, well, how did we get there? Well, that's, that's our story. That's essentially what happens in this story this morning. So we, when we read this text a few minutes ago, that was like background information. And so let's, let's enter into this, this story together. If you have a Bible, turn to, to Genesis chapter 25. Uh, and what's interesting here, and so this is, this is the story of, of Jacob and Esau. We talked a little bit about Jacob last week, so we kind of skipped ahead a little bit in the story. Now we're going to scoot back uh, to look at Esau. Like, who is this guy? What's, what's his deal? Because the reality is Esau becomes one of the ultimate warning stories in the Bible. Like, the New Testament looks at Esau and is like, don't be like this guy. And, and so what, what is it about him? Well, essentially, he trades away what future him would have done anything to receive. He trades away the promises of God for a moment of pleasure, a moment of satisfaction. And the author wants us to recognize, to ask this, like, are we going to do the same? Are we going to be disappointed when we get to the future? So again, back up a little bit. So if you've been in in Genesis with us, we've been telling this story. And and primarily for the last couple months, really several months, it's been about this, this family. Because the promises of God are, are coming forth through this family. So we talked about Abraham and Sarah. And then, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Isaac and Rebekah. And, and all that, you know, God did to bring them together to keep this promise, this family, moving forward. And if you remember that story, so think about it. Like Isaac and Rebekah, they had just gotten married. And 20 years passed now at the start of our scripture reading this morning. 20 years. 20 years because Rebekah... Just like Sarah, and just like Rachel next week, is un- unable to have kids. Like, I mean, think about that. God's promise is to, to build a family, and the first three women he chooses, these first three matriarchs, all of them are unable to have kids initially. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Like, this is who God chooses, right? Nothing about God's promises come easily or even naturally and yet, here we, here we are. And so, so Isaac prays. And 20 years later, like, don't miss that. Like, this story happens so fast, these early parts. 20 years, he prays. And then Rebecca has twins. And it's clear from the beginning, the way the author sets us up, that this is like, this is an unusual story, right? Um, this is another sort of Cain and Abel story. It's setting us up for, for conflict. There's going to be, there's going to be trouble here. That these, these two, they are sinners from birth and they are at each other's fir- throats. Because even the way the story, the birth story, like, so, you know, Esau's born first. He's the firstborn, the heir. And so, again, like the reader at this moment is thinking, okay, so, you know, God's promises, moving through this family, he's the heir. Like Esau is the one right? I mean, that's what we should all assume at this point in the story. Esau is the one that's going to keep God's promises moving forward. Uh, And yet, then the author says, like, but Jacob, you know, he he comes out of the womb, like, holding on to his brother's heel. It's almost like they're racing to get out. And Esau, we're going to find out, he doesn't really care about any of this stuff. And, but Jacob, he, he wants it. And then, 
they grow up. So again, this is all just background to get to our story. They grow up. So a lot of years are passing in this part of Genesis. Uh, and the author describes, we think you know, Moses is the author here. Moses describes the two of them. And Esau is like a hairy beast of a man. Um, like a man's man, a hunter, like he's like, just picture him like bushy red, like hair all over his body kind of guy, right? He's just, that's, that's just how he's described, right? He's a man's man, um, a mountain man. Uh, Jacob, on the other hand, is like, a, he's quiet, he's reserved, like he's a little bit more laid back. And one other detail that the author tells us before we get to our story is that Rebecca prefers Jacob. Like she loves him over Esau, and Isaac loves Esau. Okay, so it's great parenting, right? So again, the author's like laying the, the ground, okay, something's, something's gonna happen here, right? This is, this is like, there's, there's a storm brewing in this family, God's family, his chosen family. Something is gonna go down. And one of the piece, so the reason Isaac Loves Esau. Did you catch that in the reading? It's ridiculous. It's because Esau would bring him meat. That's why he loves his son more. Because he was a hunter and he loved the game. It's like, you know, I love meat as much as the next guy, but I'm not going to pick my favorite kid over it, right? I've got other reasons to pick my favorite child. Um, but that's, that's, so that's the background. And then we get to our actual story. I know that was a, that was a, a bit much, but that's all helpful in understanding that this, there's a storm brewing in this family. And so verse, verse 29 then, this is where it really picks up. Let me read that. Once, once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. And we go to verse 31. Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, it's pretty clear, okay, Jacob is a stinker in the story. Okay, he's, he's not a great person, and we saw this last week. We'll see it again in a couple of weeks. Like, God is going to deal with Jacob, right? It's important. This is, I mean, it's, most likely it's premeditated. Like, he's trying to exploit his brother's weakness to gain the upper hand, okay? It's, it's not great. But what Jacob wants is in itself a good thing. Whereas Esau, you know, we're going to see, he just doesn't even, he doesn't even care. And even, even the way this story is told, kind of, we kind of miss some of it in the English text, but in the Hebrew, it's a little bit, it's a little bit clear in some of the commentators, scholars that I've read. So, like, you know, at first you kind of have sympathy on Esau. If you just read it in the English, like, well, he's starving. Like, he says he's dying. He's really, really hungry. But don't miss the fact that the author just told us when he came in from the field. Not some long journey. Not some harrowing experience. Like, this is a day's work. Like, I'm hungry when I get home from work, too, but I'm not dying. So what's happening here is Esau, is, I mean, it's so over the top. Like, he's, he's, he's not dying. He's not starving. He's just hungry, poor little guy, right? And, and even, even the way, uh, the, the language here, uh, scholars talk about, so he, he kind of just keeps rambling on in this first part of the uh, first part of the story. Um, and scholars point out that the Hebrew he uses is almost like substandard Hebrew. It's like sort of like caveman language. Like what he actually says in the Hebrew is, give me some of that red, red. I don't know why he has such a deep voice or a southern accent. Um, it's probably my own issues. But, but like, give me some of that red, red. That's what he calls it, red, red, right? Like red stew is my favorite. 
right? That's, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And even the word for eat there is often used for feeding animals. So it's like, you know, gimme num num. He's just, the, the author here is just pointing out subtly and all, like, this is, this is ridiculous. It's so over the top. Like, Jacob's not great in this story, but Esau, he's, he is controlled by, by food. He loves it too much. And it turns him into some sort of an idiot to get more of it. I mean, even just like remember, like this is why his dad loves him because he brings him food. So this is like like father like son kind of thing happening here. And even if the the next story uh, coming up here is like uh, Jacob tricks his dad because of like he uses food to do that. So the author is is, is showing us, that, man, that their their loves are just disordered. Like Esau is enslaved to his appetites. He wants what he wants when he wants it. And his master is his stomach. And he's about to trade something of eternal significance for a bull of red red. Okay, but like, who cares, right? It's just a bowl of stew. But what's, what's really at stake here? It's the, the birthright. Okay, well, that's... Not helpful. Like, that means nothing to us culturally, right? Uh, but in the ancient Near East, this was a really big deal. And so, like, the birthright for them, I mean, it was not only would the firstborn inherit a double portion, typically, of the inheritance, so receive twice as much. So those of you who are the oldest, huh? not bad. Those of you youngest, sorry, you're just out of luck. Um, not only that, but you'd, you would have this, this higher place of, of esteem, of respect within, within that culture. It was a big deal. But more than that, and this is what's so important, this is what the author keeps pushing us towards, is that regardless of what Jacob and Esau believe at this point, and frankly, at this point, I have doubts about both of them. I don't think they really know Yahweh yet. Um, Jacob will, that's clear. Um, but at this point, like, it's a little sketchy, isn't it? And yet, I'm sure they've heard the, the stories, right? They, growing up in that family, are you kidding me? They'd heard the promises. Yahweh this, Yahweh that, God's promised that, Grandpa Abraham, right? They knew all of the stories, but I'm not sure they believe it. I don't think either of them really know, it, know what's at stake in this moment. But the reader does. Again, that's, that's us, that's the original people reading this story. Like, we know what's at stake. This family is at stake. God's promises are at stake. And the big question here for, for everyone is like, okay, is, is God's promise, is it going to come through Jacob or is it going to come through Esau? Like, at the end of this, this story, is, is God's family, is it going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau? Or is it going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God's promises to redeem the world is going to come through one of them. Who will it be? It's a, it's a lot of stake, at stake, isn't it? And so verse 32, Esau says, of what use is a birthright to me? And then Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Again, they'd, they'd heard the stories. They knew the promises. What use is any of that to me? I'm hungry. And again, even though like, it just seems so ridiculous to us, and yet, like, you've been there, right? You, you know, that's how temptation works. Like, it's what it does when th- those moments, like, desire clouds out reason. The consequences vanish from our imagination. God's promises become worthless. Future you 
is silenced. Ah, but it just smells so good. And as it overcomes us, it is as if God is dead to us. All for that split second of relief. Which is so often all that it is, right? That, that moment of satisfaction. Even in this story. Like verse, verse 34, that's, that's often how long it lasts. Verse 34, look, look how this story sort of wraps itself up. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went. Like, do you see how brusquely it ends? After all the things that Esau had to say at the start, like now he's silent, and it's just the verbs. That's all we're given. He ate, drank, rose, and went. Because once the deed is done, right, what's left for him now? And again, you, you know those, those experiences. It's like, it's like gossip, right? And we, we gossip because it tastes so good leaving our mouth. And then the moment it's out, it's like, what did I just do? And you, you, know, you know what it's cost. It's followed by that hollow regret. Or you think about, about lust, right? It's, you, you can't stop thinking about that, that website or that illicit relationship, Right? But once it's, once it's over, and we can, we can do that with, with money and power, shopping, alcohol, food, like you name it. In many ways, and this has happened throughout Genesis, and in many ways, this is another retelling of the Adam and Eve story, isn't it? It's like humanity's faced with a, a chance, right? And the question, are they going to pass or are they going to fail, Right? We've seen the same pattern. Adam and Eve failed the test. So did Cain. So did Noah after the ark. So did the builders of the great tower. So did Abraham several times. Lot and his family. And now Esau. It's another test. Like the author is showing us. Like, okay, in the garden we said we're done with God. We're going to do it on our own. How's that working? Failure. 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 And what? What was his sin, really? We see it in verse 34. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He treated God's promises with contempt. I I don't want those promises. Those aren't for me. And he betrayed his future self for a moment of satisfaction. And even the, even the way the New Testament writers reflect on this story, so Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament, so that's written particularly for us as, as Christians, right, for, for the church, and it has this sort of haunting, short commentary on this story. It's, it's actually, I mean, it's kind of heartbreaking. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become deviled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, like he wanted to go back, right? Future him wanted to go back. When he wanted to go back, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." The author there is reflecting back on this story and the story in, in Genesis 27. It's when, when Esau realizes what he's done, that not only has he given up his, his birthright, but he's lost his, his dad's blessing. 
He who had always been the favorite of his father. He lost the blessing. And it says there that as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. But it did no good. Future him regretted it. Would have done anything to go back. Future him couldn't believe his foolishness for red, red. But future him can't change the past. So future him dies in regret. It could have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Father of the Jewish people, the focus of the Old Testament, it could have been his family and the genealogy of Jesus. Think about that. It could have been Esau. But it's not. In the book of Hebrews, written for us as Christians, I mean, it just couldn't be clearer the way the the author describes this story. Like, Like, you and I could do the same thing. Future you could hate you for your choices. Seriously. And so what would future you want you to do? I think there are three lessons for us in this story. As we try to to wrestle with that question, what would future me, right? What would he want of me? I think there are three lessons that come out pretty loud and clear for me in this story. First of all, this, this one... Now, these first two are pretty, pretty difficult. But this first one, I think, in particular, is just so counter to our culture. Like, some of you are going to hear it, and you're just going to roll your eyes. You're just not going to believe it, because culturally, it sounds ridiculous. And yet, it's what this story is teaching us. First, first lesson from the story is that there are things you can lose and never get back. There are things in life you can lose and never get back. And again, we don't, we don't believe that, because I think for most of us, like, we... we, we Believe our lives are like a choose-your-own-adventure novel. You ever use one of those? Like when, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So, you know, you, you can read a little bit and like, oh, do I want to do A, B, or C, right? Like you get to pick everything you want, but we also assume, so not only do I got to have all my choices my way and do whatever I want, we, we also assume that no matter what we choose, of course we're going to live happily ever after. Like, of course there's going to be a happy ending because I'm me, right? And I'm awesome, right? We just, we assume that no matter what. So, so we say to ourselves, I can, I can pick my own way and I know it'll end up well. I mean, there, there'll always be more chances, won't there? I can make it up to my kids. She'll forgive me. I'll do better next time. I'll have more time later. And if all else fails... I'll fix my regret in therapy. Yes, God can forgive you. But that doesn't eliminate the natural consequences of our sin. And you you know the stories. How we can lose so much in such a moment. I mean, the relationship that's been ruined with a word just came out of your mouth and that it'll never be the same like you just you can't go back you can't go back or, or the the integrity that's been lost over a quick financial decision you don't even remember what the money was for right and you lost part of yourself in that moment or the way a spouse or kids will never be the same because of your controlling abuse or i think about a good friend of mine And you, you know this, like you have, a, you have a friend like this or a friend of a friend, like we all do. But 
for me, it's personal. A good, a good friend of mine, a former pastor, my age, you know, husband, father, the whole thing, who in a moment, a moment, lost everything. All of it. Will God forgive him? Yes, I absolutely believe that. Um, did he learn his lesson? I think so. Will his life ever go back to the way it was? No. Will he ever stop feeling regret in the pit of his stomach? No. Will he ever stop hating himself? I hope so. Listen, friend, Jesus doesn't just want to save you from your sins. He wants to save you from a lifetime of regret. Obedience to God isn't just right. It isn't just our, our duty or responsibility as his people. Obedience to God isn't just right. It's better. It's good. It, it's for our flourishing. It's to prevent the regret that's so easy to have. So ask yourself, what would future you want you to do? That's the first lesson. Second lesson is that your appetites can serve you or enslave you. They can serve you or enslave you. In, the, in their place, our appetites are good, right? And I, I love food, probably more than most of you. And I don't know about anybody else in this room, but I would love to try some Red Red right now. Just as like, what's all the fuss? Like, anybody else? Like, what is this? It's got to be amazing, right? I love food. And, and food, and it's, you know, in its place, in moderation, right? Alcohol or sex and marriage, like Netflix and everything else. Like, the reality is, in their right places, our desires are good. They are gifts. And yet, every one of your appetites... Every one of them. It doesn't matter what it is. Like every one of your appetites out of control and you could regret it forever. The moment we, we lose control of our desires, they could destroy us. I mean, Paul talks about this a little bit in Philippians. He, he writes, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. And what does it look like to make Jesus your enemy? It means to make your stomach your God. It means to make your, your appetites, your desires, to let them rule over you instead of him. And again, this is, this is another one I think it's just, and we talk a lot about this as a church, but like this is just so unbelievable for us as a culture. Like our highest value culturally is absolute total freedom. Right? We, that's how we've defined the good life. Nobody can ever tell me what to do. No matter what it is, I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, and you can't say a, a thing about it. Right? That's, that is how we've defined the good life. And so, I mean, think about it, like, Why would we deny ourselves anything in a culture like that? I mean, even just ask yourself, like, when is the last time you have denied yourself something? Because it's, it's just a little red-red. But what did it cost? And I think what's so hard for us is we don't realize that the decisions we make today are leading to different decisions tomorrow. That we are slowly being formed into a certain kind of person. And so like, yeah, maybe, maybe the gossip thing, maybe that was, it was just, you gossip, but it was about somebody you didn't even care about. Like, okay, right? But then the next time it's somebody who actually is a friend of yours. And then time after that, it's with your closest friend and now you're alone. 
Or you think about lust. It's just a little lust, right? But then it leads to pornography. It leads to affair. And then what, right? Or, or you know, you only yelled at your, your spouse that one time. You'll never do it again until the next time. And it got worse and it escalates. And then what, right? You and I are always being formed. The reality is you are not, sitting here today, you are not the same person you were yesterday. And you, you are not, this, tomorrow you're not going to be the same person you are today. You are always, we're always being formed. Every decision we make leads to another. The things that we choose, you are becoming a certain kind of person. And every, every choice you make along the way is shaping you into that kind of person. Who are you becoming? So often we think, well, in the crucial moment, I'll pass the test. The reality is, if you failed it a thousand times in smaller ways leading up to that, who's to say? You've been training yourself to fail the test. You and I are always being shaped. We're always forming, being formed. Who are you becoming? Because real freedom, real freedom isn't the ability to do whatever I want. And that's a, that's a lie our culture tells us. Real freedom is the ability to say no to my desires, to like know the difference between good desires that I have and bad desires and be able to control them. Real freedom comes in the power to say no to what you think you want now for something you're going to want better, even more in the future. That's freedom. And what God is offering you from this day on is a life free of regret. A life where he begins to show you where real joy is. With the ability to say no to what you think you want. And future you will thank you for it. What would future you want you to do? And finally, last, last thing, third lesson, is that you can decide today who you want to become tomorrow. It's a pretty amazing reality, right? You can just, in this moment, and I know it sounds really easy, like it's just, well, if I decide, then it's going to happen. No, it's obviously there's, you need community around that. You need practices that help form you. You need to be shaping, being shaped in those ways through God's spirit. Absolutely. And yet, there is an intention involved. There is a decision that comes. You can decide today who you want to become tomorrow. Tomorrow. Do, you, do you want to let your stomach, your appetites be your God? Or do you want God to be your God? Maybe, maybe another way of, of looking at this or asking that question is, what do you want said at your funeral? I mean, I have a hunch, right? For, for all of us, we all kind of generally want the same things. Well, how do you, how do you be that kind of person that gets those kind of things said? Because I've been a pastor for 14 years. I've done a lot of funerals. And I've done them for, for people who lived well, loved well, died well with hope in Jesus. And even though those funerals are hard, like there's, there's a bedrock of joy and hope in those settings. I've also done funerals that are the exact opposite of all that. In fact, there's, I can remember one in particular. It's early on in, in being a pastor where, I mean, it's heartbreaking, but it became absolutely evident within about a minute that everybody there was glad she was dead. And I realized, like, that's an extreme example. Everybody here is like, well, that's not going to be me. Well, I hope not. But what's the difference? It's every single day. It's living with the end in mind. It's saying no to dumb things so that you can say yes to the best thing. It's a life surrendered to something bigger than your own desires. What would future you want you to do? Because I know this, in some ways, it's, it's such a weird story. Bullets do. Birthrights. Like, really? And yet you and I, we are so like Esau, aren't we? We're so caught up in the immediate. We want instant gratification. We want what we want, and we want it now. And if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, the reality is every time you sin, every time you trade 
what God wants for you for something short-term, something immediate, you also despise your birthright. Because you've been adopted into this family. Like Yahweh is your dad and Jesus is your brother. And so the question remains for each one of us, like, are we going to pass the test? Not a great track record in the scriptures of people passing the test. Failure, failure, failure. How are we going to pass it? Well, let me tell you how. It's through one of Jacob's descendants, not Esau's, by the way. Did you know that there's a a story in the Gospels um, where Jesus is, like, really hungry? Did you know know this one? Like, not just, like, came in after a hard day at the field hungry, but, like, 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, truly starving hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, hey, I can, Jesus, I can give you bread. Like, that's a legitimate desire. Like, Jesus needed bread, right? And there's nothing wrong with bread, right? All of that was fine. It It was a normal desire, but... I said, I can give you bread. All you have to do is give up on this foolish quest to rescue these humans. Adam and Eve failed the test. Esau failed the test. You and I failed the test. Jesus passed. He said no to short-term gratification for what he wanted as the redemption of all of us in this room, the redemption of all things. Like that he, instead of trading a moment of satisfaction... He denied himself and eventually took up a cross. And he died to forgive us of our regrets and our failures. And not just forgiveness. Sometimes we stop there. He also died to give us his victory. Because the reality is, if you're with Jesus, he passed the test for you. Because he he knows you and I are going to fail. He passed the test for you. But another thing that we often forget is that the same spirit that empowered Jesus to pass the test. And the same spirit that raised him from the dead, that same spirit lives in all who trust him. Like, do you believe that? That spirit, that power lives in you, which means you don't have to eat red red anymore. You don't, you don't have to yell like that anymore. You don't have to lust anymore. You don't have to drink like that or, or spend like that or gossip like that or, or spend your time in anger or bitterness or unforgiveness. You don't have to do any of that anymore because Jesus, not only has he passed the test for you, he has empowered you and me with all that we need to be able to follow him and forgiveness along the way when we fail. And so what would future you want you to do? <laughs> Run to Jesus today and every day. And in just a moment, we get a a chance to practice that, right? We're always being formed, and so we're going to come to this table. We do that every week. This this feast, not that destroys us like this this weird stew, right? But a feast that truly satisfies us. So before we go to the Lord's table, though, let's let's just take a minute to reflect, um, to think about these things, to maybe confess our sins, to reorient our loves. Um, And if it helps, I've got a slide for us here. Uh, Maybe just fill in the blank. Maybe just spend the next minute doing that. If I continue to blank, and I think many of of us, like instantly something's coming to your mind, like of what that blank is, that thing is. If I continue in that direction, I could end up blank. Or maybe the opposite side of that. If I don't start blank, something positive, I could end up blank. Why don't we take a minute or so to think about these things and reorient our loves. Let's pray together.